From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. A lot of filmmakers in our beloved dark genre became directors because of their passion for all things horror. Nightmare worlds ignite their creative juices, and telling tales of terror becomes their reason for being. They make horror films to share their fears with an eager audience held in thrall with their ability to spin frightening spiderwebs. You can tell by watching a film that is made by someone passionate for the genre, and you can tell when it's made by someone who sees it as a stepping stone to go to what they perceive as higher ground. You can sense cinematic cynicism from the first scene of a movie made for money and not for love. It can be limiting. Filmmakers who achieve success in the horror genre find themselves confined there because the studios and producers whose job it is to put movies on screens can't see beyond the immediate. I've said before that someone who can make a great horror film is probably capable of making a great film in any genre. First of all comes the story and the characters. The horror is icing on the poison cake. But opportunities for filmmakers of the dark arts are limited. It is a kind of horror jail where they are denied opportunities to tell stories that aren't about blood and fear and monsters. I'm not complaining that my filmmaking career has been mostly limited to the genre. It's a field I've loved for as long as I've been watching movies and reading books, and it's my first choice when I'm looking for entertainment. I'd love the opportunity to do a personal drama, a satirical comedy, an emotionally wrenching doomed love story, but it's not likely that the powers of B will be able to see beyond the King adaptations and masters of horror. But the good news is that the horror stories I'm drawn to are about all those things too. The Shining is about a splintered family torn by ghosts and alcoholism. Riding the Bullet is also about a fractured family and ghosts, but of a very different nature, dealing with the Sophie's choice of death and who will be next in the grave. 
My favorite horror films feel personal, connect dramatically. Movies like Rose Glasses, Saint Maud, Remy Weeks's His House, Keith Thomas's The Vigil, and Rob Savage's Host exist in the real world, a lived-in world, and provide more engrossing drama and character complexity than any studio drama ever could. I love a rip-roaring blood and thunder picture show as much as anyone, but horror set in a world that I live in with characters I understand and identify with resonate with me long after the end credits have rolled. Our guest this time is a sort of jack of all trades. He's worked as a writer, director, and producer in features and television and cannot be pigeonholed by genre, though his most well-known works are horror. Gary Sherman's first feature was Raw Meat, and that title alone will give you a glimpse of his passion for the genre. Let's put him on the slab and see what makes him tick. Severin Films, one of the very best creators of special edition Blu-rays, presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee 8 Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 1960s classics Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre, hosted by Lee, plus a brand new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order now at severin-films.com. That's S-E-V-E-R-I-N-films.com. And follow Severin Films on social media for details of their forthcoming releases, including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex de la Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, Hodorowski's Santa Sangre, new special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu in Venice, and more from Severin Films. It's a special company doing very special editions, and you better check them out. Good to see you, Gary, Good even on a you, screen. It's a, it's I know, it's great. You know, I, I really was listening to, to your introduction to your thing. You know, it's, it's funny, the horror genre, I love horror and I love the genre and I love the people in the genre. Horror, film, horror directors, horror filmmakers in general are, are some of the nicest people in the world. And, and, I, and I think that a lot of people choose horror because as a, as a writer, a director in horror, you really are creating something for your audience. I, I don't know any horror directors or writers who write for themselves. Like, as you said, the, the upper echelons of, of filmmaking where people make, you know, self-indulgent movies and they're self-indulgent people. And, you know, when you go to a horror film festival, it's like a love fest. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. hugging everybody. Everybody loves it. When you go to, you know, like a, 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 a straight film festival everybody's got their nose up in the air and it's yeah I, I the horror genre well the you know i i've said before that the genre fans and makers are bound by the feeling of being an outsider we were not the popular kids in school for the most part and we are loners who find ourselves together at these festivals and conventions and things like that and you know we i think it's so healthy 
that we indulge our fears, that we look into our fears rather than become repressed by our fears. Yeah, well, it's, um, you, you know, that's how, I mean, I got into, into horror in the first place because I just realized how in touch I am with, with my own fears. And I was very much able to express that. And, you know, I mean, my whole thing has always been politics. I mean, I'm, I'm a very political person. Um, I lean. It's not uncommon in the genre, and it's a great metaphorical space to work in when you have a political passion. Absolutely. I, I, I lean sharply to the left. <laughs> With <laughs> and, your brother. <laughs> and, you know, and it, it was like when I wrote Deathline, uh, which you called Raw Meat. It, right. I, I hate the title raw meat. I, I made I made a film called Deathline that got bastardized into a movie called Raw Meat. Then we managed to get Deathline under the title of Raw Meat because that was the title that was registered in the United States. But in the rest of the world, it's Deathline. Anyhow, I mean that that's where Deathline came from. I I I had been writing one political script after another and never getting any of them made because they were too preachy to, you know, mm -hmm. preaching to the converted. And then somebody said, write a horror film, you'll get it made. And I thought, ah, hmm, I can take the same script that I just wrote um, and what it was, you know, what it was trying to say and write it as a horror film and, and be able to make all my political statements and, and people can either watch it as a horror film or realize what it, what, what it actually has to say. Well, you've had over the years and over the projects so much intrusion into your vision and, and the films that you made starting with Deathline. Um, you've had intrusive producers try to change what you intended. And maybe it's as simple as changing the title from Deathline to Raw Meat. But first of all, how on earth was your first movie, a Chicago guy from the Illinois Institute uh, of Design uh, studied there, makes a British movie his first time out? Well, in between graduating from the Institute of Design and, and making Deathline, uh, came the 1968 convention in Chicago. <laughs> That's a watershed. Uh, I say more. I, I I fled after the convention. My mother's British, and so I, I actually was able to go to England, and I was immediately granted a green card, um, based basically on political asylum, and. Um, uh, and I, you know, started working in England and I was mainly doing commercials. And um, uh, I mean, I was absolutely, I was doing commercials. That's what I was um, doing. And then everybody kept saying to me, make a feature, make a feature, make a feature. And I had a very successful commercials career going. And um, my producer was a, was a guy that you may have heard of. His name was Jonathan Demi. <laughs> I may have heard of that guy. And John, John and I had, a, we actually, we were put together. He was working for a company from New York that, that had an affiliation with the London uh, production company. We were thrown together to work together in London. 
and then we left we both left the company and we opened our own commercial production company which we uh, had a, a lot of success with well, for those who are not good with names, of course, Jonathan Demi was the director of Silence of the Lambs and so many other fantastic movies. But yeah, at the time, Jonathan had no even thought about directing. But anyways, Jonathan kept pushing me and saying, you should do a feature, you should do a feature. And to do so we wrote a bunch of scripts together that never got made. And um, we, well, actually, we sold one and we sold it for 500 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I still have the contract. I think it's really funny. It's Gary Sherman and Jonathan Demi, and we sold the script for 500 pounds. That is um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so but, were you drawn to the genre before you decided to make this political horror film? I, I was a fan of horror. I, I, I don't think that I thought about making horror. Yeah. Um, what were the ones that you found most influential in your youth? Oh, the one that was the, the one that stands out that was most influential to me was House of Wax, oh, which I saw in 3D. I was like, I guess like six or seven years old, maybe eight years old. Yeah. And my brother took me to see uh house of wax in 3d thinking i still scare the shit out of them <laughs> <laughs> and it did and and it just really hooked me into horror movies i i mean it it blew me away i just i really liked it i i would sneak and and get up and watch television late at night um on the weekends and watch uh, shock theater with Marvin. <laughs> so I'd watch the horror host. Yeah. Yeah. He wore all black and a black turtleneck and had hair, you know, and, and these Coke bottle glasses <laughs> and he would just, you know, stare at the screen and make faces. And he played mostly the old universal horror films and some hammer stuff. And, um, yeah, the shock theater package that was syndicated and then each local uh, territory would have their local horror host. Yeah, right. Very cool. So, I, you know, and, and I always loved it. And then I, I think where I really got into horror and, and got into um, uh, fear was that when, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, there was a series of murders in Chicago. And there were three young boys who were about my age who disappeared on a Saturday. On Wednesday, the front page of the Sun-Times had a picture of their bodies, which had been found naked and mutilated oh my God. in a forest preserve outside the city. And I mean, the picture was blurry and ba-boom, but the, the fact that the Sun-Times put it on the front page and it was just shocking to everybody. Well, anyways, it freaked me out. And at the time, there were several other serial killer type murders happening in Chicago. There was a, just near my house, there was a three barrels, 50 gallon drum barrels floating in, in, in the lake. And they pulled them in and there were part body parts of a young woman who had been missing. 
and then there were some there were two sisters who were found dead in, in uh, um, and and you know mutilated and, and and there was just all this stuff going on and it really freaked me out and being a, a very precocious kid I, I everybody said well if you learn a lot about something is not as scary which is not true i i i started reading about serial killers and the more i read about them the more i i was in fear but it it really just i i got in touch with my fears and that's when i first started writing scary stuff yeah did you write short stories and things as a kid yeah i did and i and i did basically what today would be called graphic novels because I drew and painted. And so I would, I would do these almost kind of horror comic books when I was a kid, but I, 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 I was not a comic book fan. I didn't, I didn't even know that that stuff existed. Right. So what did you study at the Illinois Institute of design? Um, well, I went there, not knowing at, at at id which is the new bauhaus it's it's actually based on the bauhaus and in fact when maholi naj and george kepish and mies van der rohe and that group was thrown out of germany by hitler and he closed the bauhaus because he thought it was degenerate hmm. um they came to chicago and uh, they set up the Institute of Design, and then it, eventually it became part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. But um, when I got there, it was still running the same principles. And the, the first year, you study everything. Mies van der Rohe came on Fridays, and we sat at his feet and looked up at God. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're interested in architecture, Mies van der Rohe is God. <laughs> and George Kepish would would come in and I mean the people that came were just amazing well who came to lecture on photography see at the Bauhaus Moholy's feeling was that if you hire teachers um, they're teaching history you have to have real designers and real architects and you know working designers and working architects and working photographers and working whatever teaching and they're only allowed to teach one day a week so who came in to lecture to us on photography was aaron siskin who was the father of modern photography i mean he's one of the great photographers of all time and you know as i said we had to do everything and we took you know we had to shoot photographs we had to build things out of wood and out of metal and out of glass and out of you know and they, they just make you crazy you build things out of soda straws i mean it was, uh, it's like torture foundation here. <laughs> Anyhow. So you're drawing and drafting and, and writing and doing. Oh, you do everything. Yeah. You do, you do everything. And so Aaron comes to critique our work and Aaron sees my photographs and says, what are you majoring in? And I said, well, I was thinking about architecture and possibly product design. I wasn't really sure what it should have wanted to go. He said, no, you're a photographer. He says, I take on three students a year that become my private students. And if you want the position, you got it. Uh, what a complimentary honor that oh, was. Oh, man. I mean, here's this Aaron Siskin saying to me, you can study with me. You want to? Are you going to say no? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
Well, that made up your mind in in the course of uh, the direction of your life. Yeah. So anyways, but I was studying, you know, still black and white still photography. Aaron got upset if you took color pictures or if you did anything else. So, um, but anyway, so then I I found a camera, an old 60 millimeter Aeroflex in in a closet at school. And I rebuilt it and got it running and started shooting footage. And in the meantime, I, I, very quickly, I was working my way through school because my parents didn't want me going to art school. And one of the jobs I had was as a background musician at Chess Records. Whoa. So this was the heart of R&B at the time. Oh, yeah. Chess this Records. was... So I'm doing a, uh, I did a session with Bo Diddley. Uh, you yeah. made a film with him, right? Yeah. Well, that's how it happened. I, I, I was doing a session with him and I said to him, hey, Bo, can I shoot some footage of you? You know? And he said, sure, man, no problem. Just ask Ron if it's okay. And, you know, the head engineer, Ron said, yeah, just stay out of the vocal booth. It'll be fine. So I bring this 16 millimeter camera in and I start shooting footage of, of Bo Diddley. And Marshall Chess walks in, who's, who's Leonard Chess's son, the owner of the of Chess. And Marshall says, what are you doing? I said, he said, let me see it. And I show it to him. He says, let's make a movie. I said, I don't know anything about making a movie. He said, I'll hire everybody. You just do what you're doing. What you, the, the images are fantastic. And that's what happened. And I made this Bo Diddley movie. And he sold it to 75 television stations around the world. And the next thing I knew, I had a production company. And then that that segued into commercials. Commercials brought me to England. And And you became a director. And I became a director. So after Deathline, Raw Meat, um, you got another opportunity. And it's probably the movie, best known movie of yours, with the possible exception of Poltergeist 3. with Dead and Buried, which is right now being restored for release in 4K. And, but again, you suffered tremendous abuse, uh, creative abuse by the producer, Mark Damon, on this, who you had made a movie. And I was working at Avco Embassy right after this, I believe, in 1980. I, I was working on movies like The Howling and the Fog and Escape from New York, but I didn't get to work on this one, but it was right around the same time. Bob Ramey was a great studio head who really got the genre and encouraged people like Joe Dante and John Carpenter and David Cronenberg at the time. And me. And and he was quite a proponent of that movie, but it didn't help a lot because Mark Damon, your producer, was... Mark was was a producer... Well, he was foreign sales, right? Yeah, no, he, his, Dead and Buried was a negative pickup for Avco Embassy. Right. And it was made by a production company. And the first production company was Richard St. John, which, who, who basically was wonderful. Right. And we shot the film and we did pre-production under Richard St. John. Then Richard, um, sold the company because he was going someplace else and sold it to a man named John Hyde that was Aspen Productions. Right. 
John Hyde was great too. I mean, he, you know, he was so. John Hyde is the guy who bought Masters of Horror for Anchor Bay. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, John came in, and John really understood what Ron, you know, when Ron Chusset and I, the movie we were trying to make, and and he was very supportive of it. So we we get all the way to the director's cut. And Mark Damon's company comes in and buys Aspen Productions. Uh-huh. And we, we, we screen the director's cut. And I mean, everybody was really excited about the cut. And um, Bob Ramey's hugging me and everybody's all excited. And Ronnie's jumping up and down. Mark Damon comes, puts his arm around my shoulder and walks me into a corner of the screening room and looks me in the eye and say, it's a good movie. But if I wanted Bergman to direct the horror film, I'd hire Bergman. <laughs> he said, now let's make a horror movie. So the movie was complete. Yeah. And he comes in and wants to lift his leg and leave his yellow stain on it. And it's putting it mildly. <laughs> well, tell me about that. This is a sense of frustration you had on your first movie. No, on I- my first movie, only in the United States. When I made Deathline for Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr., it, it, was, it was one of the best experiences a filmmaker could have. They were 100% supportive. I mean, I have lots of stories about Jay and Laddie. And I mean, they'd never made a little movie before. And I talk, they wanted to make it as a big budget movie. And I said, no, I don't want to do it as a big budget movie. I want to do it for pennies. And they said, you're kidding. And I said, no, that's what I want to do. And they said, okay. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to ever argue with you when you say you want to make it for less than they want to. Well, you know, I had a really successful commercials career going and I was making a lot of money shooting commercials and I didn't want to take more than a few weeks to shoot Deathline. And I also felt if I'm going to make a feature, I want to make a feature that's going to make money because if it doesn't make money, then you don't get another one. Right. And, um, but I mean, in in the, the only frustration then was in U.S. distribution. The problem was U.S. The rest of the world, Deathline was Deathline and unchanged and uncut. And you know, it was only in the United States when Samuel Z. Arkoff, oh, yeah, who the most disgusting human beings I've ever met. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, we, he flew to London, you know, and he, he, he bought the film from under. Uh, uh, I mean, I got to tell you, Frankie Blondes and David Niven Jr., who Frankie Blondes was president of Paramount then, and David Niven Jr. was president of CIC, which was the Paramount Universal European co-production. Right. And um, Frank and David screened the film together, and they went nuts over it. I mean, they went nuts. So Frank calls and says, I'm making an offer. Paramount's going to buy this picture worldwide and da 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 CIC will distribute in Europe and boom, boom, boom. And, and Jay picks up the phone to call the person who financed the movie. And they say, oh, you're too late. And Jay says, what do you mean we're too late? And he said, well, we sold it to AIP. Oh. 
And Jay said, you did what? And he said, we sold it to AIP. He said, you're, how could you do that? He said, well, we have a right to do that. And we had three other pictures with AIP. So we put it together as a package. And what they had done is cross-collateralized it with their, against their other pictures. And, and so it, it ended up in the hands of Samuel Ziarkov, who thought that the picture was too intelligent. Oh, we can't have that in our horror movies, no. right? He hated the tracking shot. He took the tracking shot out of the movie. Mm. He, he redubbed Donald Pleasance because he didn't think anybody could understand his British accent. They took out most of the humor. Oh. I mean, they ended up with like an 80-minute film. And by the time Samuel Z and Butcher, Robin Wood, you know, the great... The, the British critic, yeah. Critic wrote an article for, for Village Voice called Butchered, which was <laughs> turning Deathline into raw meat. And he basically said in the article, don't go see raw meat. Wait till you can see Deathline. Of course, nice. it, it took 20 years for that to happen. But Well, but justification uh, comes even 20 years late. It's, it's worth years. Yeah. But... Um, so moving on to Dead and Buried, here this is, you know, the post-Alien, right after Alien, Ron Shusett, Dan O'Bannon, this, uh, uh, you know, it's on a budget, it's not like an Alien budget, but it's their next project, and it's with you, and you have a great experience producing, uh, directing the film, and making the film. Great. And then it comes to post time and Mark Damon gets his claws into your work and tell me what happened. Well, he wanted more blood in the movie. But the, the thing is that in dead in the original cut of Dead and Buried, there's no blood in the movie until Dobbs stabs himself at the, you know, or gets shot mm -hmm. by, by James Ferentino and then and then sticks the embalming stuff into his body um because dobbs is the only person in father's bluff who's alive who has blood <laughs> and and um uh so you know i i did this whole thing steve and i worked at stevie poster and i worked our asses off to there's no red in dead and buried and right. it's a very blue film Yes, well, it's it's more than blue. It's it's got a whole color palette to it, but there's yeah. no red. We just removed red. There's you know, no the green, you've gone. Got, Yeah. Yes, and the, at the very beginning of the film, Lisa Blount is wearing a red blouse. That's the last time you see red in the film until Dobbs starts to bleed originally. Right. But Mark Damon said, you can't have a horror film without blood in it. We need blood in it. And we need more deaths and more violence and more this and more that. And I said, and, and then he started saying, and it doesn't build properly. And um, everybody's saying the film is great. And Mark Damon decided, and Mark Damon has the power. Bob Ramey fought him tooth and nail. And, but Avco is only a distributor. Right. They were not the producers. And Mark da and Bob Ramey was 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 asking me to fight for what I believed and I did. And then Mark Damon was gonna sue me. 
because I was costing them money. And then Jay Cantor, who had been my mentor for my whole career, he and Bob Ramey talked and they just decided walk away. Just let them do what they want to do because you're not going to change, you're not going to change their minds anyways. But how does that feel to you as a guy who was with the movie from day one, there's going to be reshoots. Um, and are you going to let it go into somebody else's hands? Well, I didn't. I mean, exactly. the one thing that I did do is I did, re I did direct the scenes that he wanted to change. Yeah, because um, I wasn't going to let go completely. And at least that way I could mitigate some of the changes. Right. Um, the, the scene with the tubes up the doctor's nose, I hate that scene. <laughs> it doesn't belong in the movie. The doctor was one of the townspeople. The doctor was dead already. I mean, you know, it, it's it's um, and, and Stan Winston. Yeah. I love and adore and miss like crazy. It was a great. Uh, uh, Stan said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing these reshoots. I'm not doing that acid up the nose bullshit. And he, he Stan refused to do it. We're hoping that by him refusing to do it, that they wouldn't, that they'd say, oh, maybe he was right. Maybe we shouldn't go ahead. And I was just as happy. And then, so anyways, I, I just directed, I had nothing to do with anything. I didn't write those scenes. I didn't work on the script at all. I just went in and did a journeyman's job directing those scenes. And I, I hated, I hated those scenes. So you had all this great stuff that Stan Winston, uh, practical effects, all of that, they were great. But then you had to do makeup effects scenes without Stan that ended up being, uh, in your words, I think I read uh, second or third rate. They were less than third rate. They were awful. <laughs> but it's only the one scene. It's just right. it, it's the, the acid in the nose and the slicing of the fisherman's face. Right. Where they slice his face with the harpoons, which they didn't do. They were, originally, it was just... Um, he was grabbed and it went away. And then later in the, in the, uh, in the black and white eight millimeter stuff in Dobbs's, um, in Dobbs's laboratory, you see Bob England cutting his throat. Yeah. <laughs> in black and white. In black and white. Yeah. You know, that was, that was Bob England's first major role in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Dead and buried. A, a notable film for for many reasons and now you've been able to reconstruct it with blue underground and bill lustig being your your cheerleader there but uh, there's only so much you can do right but it's well know. we we never had access to the footage that they took out of the film mm -hmm. and we and we never had access to anything other than the cut negative. So there was no way we could go back to the film that I originally wanted to actually in the, in the Blu-ray, there's an extra, which is some eight millimeter footage that we shot. Uh, we had an eight millimeter camera sitting on the dolly that anybody could pick up and just shoot. And so we had, 
15 hours of which we <laughs> which we ran on multiple projectors at the rap party and that's about the last time it was ever seen until now <laughs> we, we we digitized it and i i spent several weeks cutting it and and putting it together as a 35 minute piece but in there you see one of the shots that that mark damon took away from me i i had a when when dan when sheriff dan james ferentino finds the hitchhiker's body on the highway he there's a scene he covers her with a blanket and he gets up and starts to walk towards camera and the camera starts to move back and the camera moves back for like quarter of a mile and he stops at his at his police car and gets on the radio with betty and tells her what's going on and the car and the, the shot just keeps going and going and you see this horror in the middle of this incredibly beautiful road country mm -hmm. road and then that, that that shot worked its way into something else. Well, Mark Damon says to me, who moves away from the action? You move into action. You don't move away from action. I said, who wrote that rule? He said, that's, you know, that's your fucking European filmmaking bullshit. And I don't want that in this movie. And so he just cut, he cut it. It's gone. But when we did the shot, Andy Ackerman, our second assistant director, was sitting on the camera car with the eight millimeter camera and actually captured the shot on the eight millimeter camera. So you can actually get to see it. You get to the idea of what was going on there. Yeah. Here you've done two uh, horror movies back to back and Dead and Buried, by the way, was also early work for Stan Winston and Stephen Poster, your director of photography, both of whom went on to huge careers uh, in, in their fields. <clears throat> there was a little shift. You became kind of an action thriller director after that when Bob Ramey asked you to do Vice Squad. Um, and then there's uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. These are a couple of movies that were a step apart from the horror genre, although there are horrific moments, particularly in Vice Squad. But um, how did it feel different to move into this different subgenre? <laughs> well, Vincent Camby would, <laughs> may he rest in peace. Well, um, Vincent Camby would argue with you. He said that, uh, yeah, Gary Sherman moved away from horror, but the monster he created in Vice Squad is, a, is as bad a monster as in any horror film. <laughs> well, and, there are certain critics who will always poo-poo our genre. And... No, no, no. He wasn't poo-pooing it at all. He loved it. He, he oh, did okay. three three pages on Vice Squad in the Sunday New York Times. And, and, and Richard Corliss as well in, in Time, Time Magazine. Magazine. Yeah. yeah, called it State of the R. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I was blown away. I mean, I couldn't believe that I got reviewed in Time Magazine and got a, uh, a standing ovation from Richard Corliss. Yeah, and it does have elements of horror. It is horrific, but it is a different kind of movie. It's an action thriller. Yeah, it is. But I mean, I didn't think about it as I don't think in genres, Mick. I, I think in movies, and I just I think about my audience. Um, I mean, I made that film for my audience. 
I didn't make that film for myself. And I, I, I really, again, it was a political statement. Um, I really wanted to do a film that really got into the, the negative, my negative thoughts about exploitation of women. Right. Um, and I wanted it to be as horrible as it could possibly be in terms of, of how women are rep, you know, presented. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's what I set out to do. I wanted, like you would with any monster in a horror movie, I, I wanted, um, Ramrod to be pure evil, pure evil, which was the flip side of Deathline, where the monster was, was not evil at all. Right. Right. Where he was the sympathetic character. But well, it's the best way to present your politics is by metaphor and not by by preaching to the converted, as you said earlier, preaching to the choir. Right. Um, so then <clears throat> there was one dead or alive. But then you came back with Poltergeist 3. Now, Poltergeist was a huge success and very much a Steven Spielberg, Toby Hooper film. Poltergeist 2 was Victor and Grace. Um, and Spielberg was not at all involved. And Poltergeist 3, how did that come about? We're two steps removed now from Spielberg. I was supposed to do Poltergeist 2. Yeah. Um, I was asked to do Poltergeist 2, and I actually kind of, it was, from what I understand, and I mean, this is secondhand information, but it was, it was Spielberg who, who had said to MGM that they should hire me to do Poltergeist 2. Nice. And um, he, he was a big fan of Dead and Buried and Vice Squad. And uh, um, I, I guess especially John Milius told me, I've, I've never, I've met Stephen in passing, but I don't know, you, you know him, but I don't really I do. know him. Yeah. But I... I you know, uh, John Milius told me that he was just a, that, that Spielberg was a huge fan of Vice Squad. And um, uh, anyhow, so how so did I wasn't available. I was doing, I, was, I had two pilots shooting and one series, one, one television show ready to go to series. I, I love doing Sable. television. And yeah, I, was Sable. I, yeah, Sable. Mm -hmm. And I had another um, show prepping that, that because we hit the strike, the 88. Right. The Writers Guild strike, which kind strike, of quashed everything. Quashed, squashed us. <laughs> it was Godzilla's foot on top of the writer's neck. It, it definitely was. Um, so my, my, other, my other series did not go, uh, which was a series that I really wanted to do. It was called Black and Blue. And it was about black cops in a white society. Hmm. Another and, politically resonant. Oh yeah, it was absolutely political. And it was just, ABC was really nervous about moving forward, but they really liked the show. So they were gonna move forward with the show. But. Um, well, let's talk about how Poltergeist 3 came about, and we know that Poltergeist, the first one, has become thought of as a cursed film because of so many things that befell people uh, in the film 
later on, you actually had to deal with the the death of Heather O'Rourke during the production uh, and uh, of Poltergeist Three. Yes, I did. Yeah, I, um... when it becomes real like that, and you realize I'm making a movie, but someone has passed in the midst of this, how how do you deal with that? It was difficult. Yeah. I, um, I adored Heather. I wanted my girlfriend <laughs> and I wanted to adopt her. Uh, I mean, we really did. It, 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 she had her birthday while we were shooting the film and, and we asked her, her mom if we could, if we could have her for the weekend for her birthday and show her birthday weekend, uh, which we did. And, um, you know, I, I just, she was so amazing. I, um, don't let me forget. I'll come back and tell you an amazing story about Heather. But as, as far as how I, to answer your question of how I got into it, Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr. were running MGM. Mm -hmm. Jay Cantor had been my mentor through my whole career. He still is. He's 94 years old and I still ask him before I do anything. <laughs> and um, uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. And um, so anyways, they called me, Jay and Laddie call and say, you're gonna do Poltergeist 3 for us. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> And I said, that I, I don't want to do, I didn't want to do Poltergeist 2. Um, and I, I walked away from it. I was busy, but I, I, I could have gotten out of what I was doing. But um, I said, I, I don't want to do a sequel. And I said, there's, there's no, really no room for politics in that, in that story. And so there's not really a message I can weave in. It's just not my kind of thing. So anyways, they pressed me <laughs> and they said, no, we want you to do it. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what, here's my conditions. I shoot it in Chicago because I wanted to go spend some time in Chicago. I shoot it in the John Hancock building, which is a piece of architecture that I've been awe, in awe of from the day that it was built. And I said, so I can make the biggest haunted house there ever was. <laughs> and three, I want to do all the effects practical. Yeah, there's none of the, uh, there's no blue screen. There's none of that kind of technology. There's not a dissolve. Wow. Every, every frame of that film is first generation film, which doesn't mean much to people today. But right. back then, when you did an optical, you had to make an interneg and an interpositive, and then you would do your effects on, on Duke negative. Yeah, you'd have to go down a stage in quality uh, every time you'd do a dupe. Three stages, actually, yeah. by the time you actually finished. And, you know, and I knew all that stuff because I, I, I knew optical effects inside and out because in, that was my specialty in commercials. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
I actually know how to run an Oxbury multi-head projector and animation stand, and that's where I cut my teeth. Not much and value these days. <laughs> no, but I, you know what? It is understanding understanding analog effects actually helps you create digital effects. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we can get into that. That that's a subject I could talk about forever. Right. Um, so you, you're a Chicago boy. You are saying, look, if if I'm going to make this movie, I want to bring it home. I yep. want to make it in Chicago, yep. and I want to shoot at the John Hancock yep. Building, and I want to do it this way because you didn't mind if they said no. No, I mean, if they said no, I would say no. <laughs> so you I mean, had nothing to lose by asking for what you wanted. I had nothing to lose. You know, the, the thing is that my career has been weird because, you know, I mean, I, I made a lot of money when I was doing commercials. I've, I've been basically, uh, it's hard to intimidate me. <laughs> and I don't, I don't really care about, I, I just want to do what I want to do and what I want to do for my audience. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't need to go from one movie to the other, to the other. And I was quite happy. I, I was happy making television because I was entertaining a lot of people. Yeah. And, and it, you didn't have a game plan. It was tributaries, doors that opened to you, you stepped through them. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember I walked into a party one night in Jim Bridges and uh, um, Alan uh, Parker mm. attacked me. And they, I mean, they just, both of them just started screaming at me. They said, you gave us Vice Squad and then you went back to fucking making television? <laughs> and I mean, they're, they're screaming at me, you know? And uh, I said, yeah, I love making television because more people see an episode of my television stuff in, in one night than, than, see, than all the people that have seen the biggest grossing movies ever. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you do something like a big miniseries or something that, that everybody watches. Um, it's a phenomenon, the number of people who see it all at once. Well, back but, then, just doing a broadcast. Um, yeah, right. I mean, a regular series. I mean, yeah. when, when, when Missing Persons was on the air and we were doing, you know, 20 shares, I mean, you, <laughs> we had 20, 30 million people watching that show every week. Yeah, when we did the stand, there were 50 million people a night on each of those four nights and it went up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could reach that kind of audience. But let's circle back to Poltergeist 3. You commit to it. You make it in that. We, we have the disaster of Heather O'Rourke, uh, her passing. And you have to keep going. And you have I, to keep I know. We, we were going to. J Jay and Laddie didn't want to go forward. Um, I mean, that, that day, that fateful day that... that uh, David Wardlow calls me. He, and David was was Heather's agent and manager. And David calls and says, um, we have to have a conference call this afternoon. Hmm. And I said, about well, what? And they said, well, just we're going to have a conference call with you and Laddie and Jay and Dick Berger and 
Barry Bernardi, who was I had brought in to produce yeah. Poltergeist. And so I, I was in Chicago. I was um, shooting in Chicago at the time on something else. And Barry was visiting me. And uh, anyway, so Barry came up to my apartment and we sat on the phone and the, the call happens and David Wardlow says, Heather passed away this morning. I was like, I was speechless. I, I, I was, it was like somebody put an electric shock through me. I mean, I just got hit with a cattle prod and Laddie just says, Gary, you and Barry get on a plane, fly out here right now. Mm-hmm. And we did. We just we went we went directly to the airport. We flew to to Los Angeles. Went to MGM. We sat down in Laddie's office, and we said, "Laddie said, I don't want to finish this film. I can't. How can I finish a film with a dead twelve year old in it?" Yeah. He said, "I I can't watch this film." Could Laddie just loves children? I mean, and he. Mm-hmm. He's just this wonderful man. And um, so we we had pretty much decided we weren't going to finish the film. And then Heather's funeral, I was a pallbearer at her her funeral, um, which was just awful. Carrying this box with this beautiful little 12-year-old human being in it. And um, anyway, so... And then I went back to Chicago to finish what I was shooting in Chicago, which I think was a pilot. And um, uh, I get a call. It says, we got to finish the film. <laughs> either the, the, board of, the board of MGM said, either you finish it or we'll get somebody else to finish it. So I was put in that same position, like I'm dead and buried. Yeah. And... Uh, so I um, I did. I mean, we just we, I wrote that. You know, the thing is that we were we were in prep. I had written an ending on the film originally that was just incredibly expensive to do as as a practical effect. I mean, it was going to take like fifty special effects people and working the shot and and. And uh, the, the, the prosthetics makeup was going to be unbelievable. And in, in order to do it as a, uh, as a practical, and I, I was insistent that we do it practical. And so anyways, they, they, MGM had asked me if I could shoot an alternate ending because, and see if it worked rather than spend all that money. So we had shot an alternate ending that I hated and hated and we previewed it and the audience hated it. (laughs) And although it was a little manipulated because I wanted them to hate it. But um, so anyway, so we, we were going to throw that ending away and they finally gave me permission to shoot the other ending, but I had to shoot this pilot in between. It was a pilot. It was the pilot of Sable. That's what it was. Okay. And and um, so, anyways, an MGM 
had had made a deal with with ABC to allow me to do it in between and do to do. So anyhow, um, we 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 shot that stupid ending, which was awful, which we didn't. Nobody really cared about it. We just wanted to get it over with. In fact, Scott, you know the Laura Flynn Boyle's boyfriend in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Kip Wentz was in college and he had finals and he couldn't he couldn't make the date that we were going to shoot and so everybody said oh should we change the date I said fuck it let's just get this over with nobody will miss him <laughs> so he doesn't get to come back from the other side oh. he's, he's he's eternally on the uh, on the other side so but I mean I love the effects in the movie. I'm so proud of the effects, but the film is 17 minutes short of what it was supposed to be. Mm. And, and I had to stretch out what we had. Yeah. I had to add scenes. I mean, the party scene that we had shot because somebody wanted it, but I, we, we were always planning on throwing that away. The, the scene in, uh, it was, it was supposed to go right to the swimming pool without the, all that bullshit in the in the party. Yeah, and but you had to fill a feature length film now. I had to fill it so that everything, the whole pacing of the film is dreadful because we had to stretch every scene. Well, you ended up not leaving the Poltergeist world because you went on to produce and and work on Poltergeist Legacy TV series. Yes. Well, yeah, Poltergeist. Uh, the legacy, the legacy, which yeah, well, uh, is sort of connected to poltergeist. Well, you know what? When I went in there, I mean, they asked me to, they, they, they it, it was Showtime, not the, not the production company that wanted me to come in. They weren't happy with where the show was going. I had been asked to come in at the beginning. And when they said that they want, were making it into, um, into this crazy thing, the legacy. I said, I wasn't interested. I said, why don't we do it as an anthology? I mean, yeah. you know, it's the same company that was doing Outer Limits and, and all this other stuff. And who I did Masters of Horror for later, yeah. Yeah, and I just said, let's do it as an anthology. It'll be a great anthology. I mean, mm -hmm. and they said, no, 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 we want to do this legacy thing. And I said, I'm not interested. So I didn't do the first season. So then, then Showtime called me in when they were gearing up for the second season and said, um, somebody's got to fix this show. It's going the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me in and um, to do, I did, a, I only did the half a season. I, I, I just, I was so unhappy doing that show. I didn't like it. You show. only directed one of them, right? Yeah, well, it was in Canada, so we couldn't. Um, I couldn't have American direct. Well, like if I had American directors, if it was an American writer and I wrote all the episodes, or I wrote on all the episodes in the seasons that, in the season that I worked on, so, so I you used direct. up the American points. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, we had to find, even though I had written it. I'm gonna get in trouble now. I don't think uh, from 1997 it's going to be a big deal. <laughs> no, I had written the episode, and then I, I we put somebody else's name on it, some ah. Canadian content. 
Right. And um, who actually has been getting the residuals all these years? Instead of you, that's not yeah. fair. So, well, tell me, I mean, you've had so much interference uh, on movies and in the TV shows and the like, although you had great success creating the Missing Persons, um, which was a totally different kind of show. What is the most satisfying production to you creatively? What's the one where you can proudly say, this is a Gary Sherman film and it's the least adulterated version of my vision I can offer? Vice Squad. Yeah? Nobody, uh, Bob Ramey, my hero and guardian. I mean, he just was there and said, whatever you want to do, this is a Gary Sherman film. And I had Sandy Howard as a producer and Sandy was kept sticking his nose in and Bob Ramey would come in and just kind of put his arm around Sandy and say, come on, Sandy, let's <laughs> get off the set and let Gary make a movie. And I mean, to have the president of the studio there to protect you. And I mean, it, it just was, uh, and, and Deathline is my movie. Yeah. Raw Meat is not my movie, but Deathline is my movie. And and the other thing that was really mine was Missing Persons. Yeah. I, I had no interference from, from ABC at all. They, they asked me, they called me in, and they said, we need a police drama that women will watch. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And... And we want to put it on Saturday night opposite Doc, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh -huh. And we want to grab that audience. And then we're going to lead into a whole night of, uh, of cop shows that are older, older audience women. And we want it for Saturday night. We want to grab Saturday night. So I said, you know what? Missing Persons is the only totally non-criminal thing that that police actually investigate mm -hmm. and um you know I, I had really gotten into cop stuff from vice squad i actually went through the police academy and became wow. a reserve officer when i was researching to do to do vice squad and i had spent a lot of time with cops and so i i really researched so when they said you know, write the script. I said, okay. They had they had tried to develop a missing person show before, and it was awful. Mm -hmm. And so they they had showed it to me, and they said, well, we had done a missing person show. I said, yeah, and it's terrible. And I said, yeah, we know. <laughs> they said, can you work with that at all? And I said, yeah, let's put it in the cylindrical file and start from scratch. Right. So I sat down. I wrote page one, a brand new script about missing persons. They greenlit, Mick, are you ready? They mm -hmm. greenlit the first draft. Wow. That's they nice. They didn't ask for any changes. That's happened to me maybe once or twice in, in my entire career. I know. I've never, I that's the only time it's, script. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only time it ever happened to me. I mean, I just was fucking blown away. I mean, they call and they say, okay, let, let's, let's start pre-production. Wow. We're, we're going for it. And I um I made the show. I mean, I, I got the casting I wanted. I wanted Daniel Trevanti. They said you'll never get Daniel Trevanti. I got Daniel Trevanti. 
one of the great pleasures of my career was working with Daniel Trevanti, and we're still really good friends. I mean, well, I talk to him all the time. And well, let's talk about this this studio. You were going to, you were trying to create a horror. Let me studio just say one more thing about okay. missing persons. Missing sure. persons gave me the opportunity of making a major political statement every episode. Now we're talking. Yeah. Awesome. Every episode. And S S Steve Fecky, who I brought in as a co-executive producer, Steve said, you know, we, we got a real responsibility here. People are going to pay attention to the show. And, and we're, we're making major statements here. This is a real responsibility. And I said, I love it. That I mean, sounds like exactly what you were looking for. It was. I mean, I was never happier than doing Missing Persons. That's amazing. It, it just one week was about PTSD and, and kids growing up in the in the, in the projects, and and one was about we did a, a, a one show about uh, HIV, which was just you can't get through that episode without crying your eyes out. We did elder abuse, we did child abuse, we did, you know, it, it was amazing. And every episode really said something. Yeah. So between this and Vice Squad, you really were able to make your statements uh, as well as make good film and television. Right. In a, in a police drama. But uh, to me, there's no, as I said before, there, there's no difference. I mean, the drama is drama. Yeah. And if, if, if your target is your audience, and that's, I've, I've, uh, I make films for my audience. I love entertaining people. Yeah. You know, I, I, if I had been born before film, I would have been a vaudeville. <laughs> I would have been a song and dance man. Because... I want to see you in a boater with a cane. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we wrap it up here, we're, we're coming close to time. I don't want to wrap it up without talking about what you were trying to do with uh, creating this studio in Chicago, making horror films with some seasoned veterans there to oversee, help produce, younger new filmmakers making genre films under their tutelage. Tell me that concept and what happened. We tried. Um, the idea was to, to, uh, to set it up as an with the university. Um, and actually bring in the masters of horror. <laughs> you, you were part of it. Um, you know, every, everybody, everybody in it was, was part of masters of horror. Yeah. And, uh, the idea was, is to produce films using young filmmakers and having Mick Garris, producing a young filmmaker and, and have, other filmmakers as well in that producer chair. Well, yeah, John McNaughton and John Landis and Joe Dante. And I mean, we, you know, uh, myself and um, we would bring in guest producers who right. would work absolutely hand in hand with these young filmmakers and, uh, and have the whole thing and use a lot of students we yeah. we had we put together a deal with the union. The union was like more. The, the unions here in Chicago are really incredible, 
as far as how they're uh, helping young filmmakers. And, um, you know, there were going to be students working with the union and the, all the pictures were going to be union pictures. Yeah. And uh, it was a utopian dream. It was. And it, it, it got very close to happening. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, one of the universities pulled out because uh, the other department heads got jealous that the film department was getting this. And oh, so it so, was personal politics that. Uh, well, it was academic politics, which are the okay. worst politics in the world. <laughs> and, and then there was a financier involved um, who made all kinds of noises about doing this. And he, he was, he's a billionaire and he, he we, you had dinner with him <laughs> and he never put up a goddamn penny. He just, he flew us out to Los Angeles a lot. He liked having dinner with, with everybody, with John Landis and with you and, and with Joe and, you know, and 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 Stuart, may he rest in peace. Stuart, yeah, Gordon. Stuart Gordon, another Chicago boy like yourself. Another Chicago boy. Well, there were three of us Chicago boys involved there. With McNaughton's a Chicago boy yeah. as well. Exactly. So well, it was a great idea and a great concept. And Gary, you just keep moving in lots of different circles. Those doors keep opening up for you. And I love seeing what you do with the opportunities that you get and the opportunities that you create for yourself. I have a so, lot of fun. Thank you so and much. I, I, I'm actually working on two things right now. I'm not going to talk about them, but uh, that I'm just thrilled about. Well, we'll have you back after they come to the fore. Okay. Yes. Right. Hopefully one will soon become a television series and the other one's a movie. Awesome. So, well, good luck with those. And thank you so much for joining us. And it was great to catch up with you, Gary. It was great to see you and come end of COVID. We will get together and hug. <laughs> to me. Awesome. Okay. Take care, Mick. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>